welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years War. Sorry for the delay. Holidays came up and I got back home from a family vacation. So I had to kind of settle in again and time caught up. So that happened, but I should be back to my regular schedule now. And once again, you know, every two weeks, Wednesday, Thursday, I should be putting on again. So last time, since it's been a while, I covered the failed siege of Constance by the Swedes, leading to a retreat where they pulled out just in time, preserving their forces, and the Catholics then suffered for... The Catholics then suffered for their success, getting hit by the worst of winter disease. And adding to this was smaller rebellions breaking out among commoners due to the cost of the war in daily life, which then led to massacres and depression as troops were killed by the peasant revolts and the cycle of violence, and it was not going well for anyone at that point. But with that covered, let's get started. During this whole messy time period that we just covered in the last two episodes, the armies of Silesia, which were under imperial control, were ravaged by dysentery and the Saxon had major food shortages. Wallenstein's effective men dropped by almost 10,000, leaving him with around 36,000 men, and Arnim lost around a third of his 25,000 men. The truce I talked about two episodes ago also had expired by October 2nd, 1633, so Wallenstein had sent a small attachment to Lusatia, which were meant to deal with the issues there with advancing Swedish forces. Well, Saxon forces, but under Swedish control. The men sent lied and said they were the vanguard of an even bigger army, which got armed and chased after him to eliminate one of the forces, and Wallenstein took advantage of that, sending a larger detachment of seven regiments of Croat troops to pursue the Saxons, while he advanced northeastward up the Oder, with 30,000 men to take Steinau, which we covered the first battle of Steinau earlier in the podcast. Same location. 6,000 Swedes and Saxons were garrisoned to the south of the Silesian fortresses, so this move was intended to cut them off from support. Thurn, who was in command in the area, ignored warnings of about 8,000 Imperial cavalry crossing at Coben. These troops then swept in from the south on October 11th, while the infantry and artillery approached the town from the sand hill in the west. Supposedly, the Swedish officers claimed the leaders at the outpost chose not to attack the cavalry, but to me it seems a little bit like an excuse to make up for the failure of info-gathering and not acting, but you'll see as I describe a little more, you might have different opinions. This accusation was not helped, however, by the fact that Duval, one of the Scottish commanders I mentioned a while ago, failed to command, and Thurn would surrender to the Imperials quickly, and Thurn would join Imperial services eventually, but at least not right away, but eventually. Duval was actually very drunk, and was unable to state a coherent sentence, and Thurn's surrender gave the Imperials all the garrisons in the area, or at least gave them much more access and readily accessible to attack. The Swedes suspected treachery, and Wallenstein kept both men around as he negotiated surrender, both men being Duval and Thurn. The garrisons at Golgau and Legnitz accepted the surrender, surrendered to the Imperials, but many others refused, and Duval even escaped and organized a defense until he died in April of 1634, probably from liver failure. At least that's, if he's drunk like that, then that makes a lot of sense. With the loss of Steinau, in that area in the Second Battle of Steinau, George Wilhelm of Brandenburg reinforced the garrison at Custrin in case Wallenstein advanced down the Oder. But 11,000 Imperials just swept past the garrison, capturing Frankfurt and Landsberg, spreading out to overrun eastern Pomerania and Brandenburg. Oxenstierna called for Bernhard to bring his troops from southern Germany to threaten Bohemia from Upper Palatine to draw the enemy away from the ravaged area, and Bernhard belatedly obeyed once he captured Regensburg, which had already drawn a lot of worry and alarm in Vienna 
as I covered in a previous episode. Well, I covered it. I didn't cover the Imperial reaction to it, but the Imperials were worried at such a major city falling. Walter then pulled the majority of troops from the area, leaving an attachment of men to deal with the remaining enemies while he moved on to Bohemia. An advanced guard of 2,000 cavalry continued to cross over the mountain passes at Passau, but the main force turned back and rested for the winter, which would bite him in the ass. So while this was an easy victory overall for Wallenstein, seeds of dissent and mistrust had grown, and all his mistakes or perceived mistakes were coming back to haunt him. Especially because, as I'll cover in the next section, he did not know how to play Imperial politics. So moving away from the direct war front, with the refusal to advance with the main forces into Bohemia, people began to treat his action as one of a non-rational person, not able to understand his reluctance to fight. Some even thought it was because of his obsession with astrology, which he was alleged to be obsessed with. Granted, he was fascinated by astrology and the magic of it, supposedly, but I can't say for sure this is what dictated his actions, as even a skilled general would have his rational moves and why he did it. He did use horoscopes and had other tools of astrology, but he tried to hide that as it was seen as blasphemous by the church. Rumors about his interests were basically public by 1627, and Maximilian had even led a propaganda campaign to get Wallenstein dismissed, as well as appeal to Ferdinand's piety and, you know, devout Christian nature. But I think he has shown too many good judgments in battle and in the war before this for me to think this was his reasoning of just being obsessed with astrology. I personally think it's a combo of the weight of the war on his shoulders for the Imperials and being on the front lines for so long, along with, like, personal reasons, just exhaustion. I can see him getting tired and a lot of people are getting driven to the edge of sanity, so to speak. Although, funny enough, Kepler, the famous scientist, was actually on his payroll starting in 1628, which, I don't know, I mean, Kepler was into that sort of stuff as well, but it's just kind of really funny he was into studying the stars, or at least what we would call pseudoscience, at least in our modern terms. And by 1633, the rumors of his interest in astrology just added another domino on top of all the things that was being used against him. And we all know this wasn't his first fall from grace in imperial politics, but this one was different than last time. In the last push, this came about because of more external politics, but here, his push came from internally. Many people in the Habsburg courts, like the Spanish, Maximilian, and the Jesuits, did not actually push for him to be removed, but they did not speak favorably of him and encouraged doubts about his leadership. And even those moderates that agreed with his compromise plan had little faith in his ability to get that peace, which was just another nail in the coffin, as many of the hardcore people were against his whole trying to create peace, or do more compromise peace than individual ones. So, the moderates who would be backing his plan were losing faith, which is not looking good for you. I get why they felt that way, based on the failures of any long-term peace by 1633, and all the failed negotiations he did. But on the other hand, the Swedes were pressuring their allies to stay in the fight, so it's not like he had an ease on convincing people as they still had the threat of the Swedish army at their back. And at least for their own interest, it served them better to work with the Swedes. So he really was like since was pushing a boulder up a hill at this point. The same moderates also took Wallenstein's failures personally, allying with the militants in the lack of faith with Wallenstein. He had also been out of court life since 1628, and he had even used a failed negotiation to get out of visiting Vienna in 1632. So Basically, he had burned a lot of his bridges, intentionally or unintentionally, and had no real allies left, and the emperor was in faith in him, even though he didn't remove him from his command, which was reduced as Maximilian was given command of the Bavarian forces in the last couple of episodes I mentioned, so there clearly was a growing discontent against him. And one of the more widely believed in the pernicious room was that he had taken up negotiations himself 
because he thought the Emperor relied too much on clerics to create long-term peace, and they would not get peace, so he thought he could do it better, and once he got that peace, he could use the army to enforce that peace on the Emperor, or at least, you know, convince him with the fact that the army was on his side, not the Emperor's. I believe there's a grain of truth about Wallenstein believing he could create a better peace through compromise and trying to create more stable policies, but I don't think he would think ill of the Emperor, or that he could get away with that, and that was basically treason. So politically, he basically had no one to fall back on, and it only got worse as the letter asked for his liquidation on January 11th, 1634. The army had also been alienated by his actions as well, in 1633 especially. He had mostly stayed in Silesia during 1633, separated from his senior officers who had mostly been operating on their own. And being passive had come really to a head, as it hurt the health and morale of his army, along with having many officers and soldiers the chance to prove themselves. It was a bit selfish, yes, but it was a practical issue that he didn't really want to deal with. And his men were loath to approach him as they were afraid of his temper, so they were only able to talk to each other, which grew and grew, and eventually became more conspiratorial. So by August 1633, these men had began to talk in code just to avoid attention. One officer, Piccolomini, who had been advancing up the ranks rapidly, sensed the Emperor's dissatisfaction and potentially tried to position himself to replace Wallenstein when he fell out of favor fully. One of his subordinates even penned an anonymous tract called the Bamberg Schrift, detailing the grievances of the army against Wallenstein. Ferdinand even sent a representative to question Wallenstein, meeting him at Pilsen on November 18, 1633. Wallenstein defended his actions, saying he released Thurn because of an incompetent commander under the enemy would be better off for them, and saying he was camping out for the winter for the health of his army, and while these maybe logical answers did not make him look any less guilty of incompetence at a minimum. And his answers, along with others, was the last straw, because the results were sent back and it very much looked like treason. Wallenstein appeared not to be aware of the consequences of not going to Bavaria, and all of his previous actions painting him as overly cautious, a bit suspicious, and the fact he was basically doing orders. Wallenstein began to realize the weight that was starting to hit him, so he bolstered his reputation, or tried to at least, by having his men show their loyalty, threatened to resign. 49 of his officers signed a declaration of personal loyalty on January 12, 1534, mainly because the credit of the Imperials could collapse if Wallenstein was resigned. The fear was that, at the very least, which did happen the last time he lost his command. But this didn't help much as Piccolomini penned his own criticism, which had more weight to condemn Wallenstein as he was one of his major subordinates, and him saying bad things against it did not help. The declaration of Wallenstein, the personal loyalty one, only confirmed the story of him being needing to be removed, and he, along with a few others, came to the decision, he being Piccolomini, came to the decision that he needed to be taken in dead or alive, no doubt partially thinking about their own benefit from it. Wallenstein was basically isolated by this point. Piccolomini had established by January 22nd a group of Irish and Scottish officers who had acted as assassins, the majority of them Catholics, the exception being John Gordon, who was a Calvinist. But he's not really important, it's just a stand-up that he was a Calvinist in the circle of Catholics. With Wallenstein basically considered a rebel, the Habsburg court did not get in the way of this plan, as they were most likely aware of this, and probably tacitly supported it for many of them. But again, they probably never publicly had Ferdinand even released the oath of loyalty from the officers that had signed those oaths of loyalty, and put them under Gallus until the new commander was named. And on February 18th, an even more harsh declaration accused Wallenstein of conspiracy, which effectively sealed his fate. This is unfair for a guy who was a big part of the war before and won several victories, but unfortunately he had opened himself up to this and was paying the price for his mistakes and all the decisions he made. And Piccolomini had even signed the oath of loyalty to keep from looking suspicious, needing to keep his plan to assassinate him or capture him secret. 
The Emperor's first declaration, the one about Waltzian's status, had spread to the troops by February 15th, and more payments were being raised to keep soldiers happy, so nothing big would happen out of this. On February 17th, Waltzian's ally, Scherfenberg, was arrested, and Aldringen was ordered to collect loyal troops to arrest Wallenstein. Waltzian had suspected nothing until he noticed the regiment leaving for Vienna, and sent out letters to try to counter the rumors against him, but it was too little too late by this point. He also tried to get his officers to sign another agreement, but only 37 this time, and more soldiers began to desert the regiments at Pilsen, Wallenstein realizing too late he could no longer trust the army. He packed overnight and left on February 22nd, heading west to Eger to join the Swedes, sending out an intermediary to tell the Swedes of his plan, and Bernhard was supposedly planning on meeting him in Upper Palatine. So, unfair or not, which I call a little unfair, but this is politics as usual, Wallenstein was done, and I have no doubt he would not be treated well if he was captured. And funny enough, Johann George of Saxony instructed Arnim to stop Wallenstein from defecting to continue negotiations, which, like I said, those two were in the process of secret negotiations, the backgrounds, which... Again, the Swedes didn't like, and George was trying to play his own game. The Swedes also did not buy that this was genuine, the defection and negotiations. And even if Johan thought and believed Wallenstein genuinely wanted peace, they wouldn't support it. And often Stierna's envoy to Saxony had also died, so his eyes and ears were gone, leaving him more suspicious of Saxony. Not that, that they killed him, but more that he didn't know what they were doing. So this basically set Oxenstierna to want the downfall of Wallenstein, worried about him creating separate pieces with the Saxon and other people and being the tool for that, and I'm guessing after some of the victories against the Swedes, they probably weren't the happiest to see him. The Swedes spread rumors about him, and they even tried to widen the gap between him and the Emperor. Unifel was useless by this point, as we can tell. So Wallenstein was screwed and basically had nowhere to go. He was screwed by politics, a good chunk of it his fault. The setup ensured there was no real escape for him. Both sides were against him, so he was caught between a rock and a hard place. If this is a TV show or movie, I would watch this, or like, the downfall that is. And if one of these exists, I'd love to see it, or at least hear about it, maybe watch it, depending on if I like it. If you do know about this, feel free to send me an email, which I'll mention below. I love to hear about it. I will give a more comprehensive reaction and my opinion on Wallenstein next episode, so hold on for that, as I want to kind of get the complete story before I finish, so we aren't done yet. And next time we finish it down for Wallenstein, so I hope you guys want more of this. And thank you all for listening in. Hope you're enjoying it. Social media links will be in the description box or in the links themselves, and you can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. The same email you can send the movie thing for, or TV show. Reminder about it, I have a Patreon. Thank you for those who support me, and to review and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>